Hello and welcome to Why It Matters. This is a podcast for leaders who know that relevance is a moving target. I'm Michael Goff and I'm the Strategy Director at Spark Studio. This is a collection of interviews with leaders who are passionate about something that is being overlooked. Sometimes that will be a brand, a product or a service, but it can also be an idea, something that has lost its value for many. And to re-express relevance, you need someone with vision. Sometimes you talk about percentages and figures, you you can gloss over them, but this study found that 95% Michael, of people who were referred to Trust or Trust food banks in early 2020 were technically considered destitute. There are over 1,300 food banks across the UK and the Trussell Trust are convinced they need to be closed. Not because they're no longer required, demand continues to go up as the cost of living increases, but because food banks are a symptom of more significant societal problems. Hear why closing food banks matters. So I'm delighted to say that I have Matthew with me today. Matthew is the Chief Strategy Officer of the Trussell Trust. Welcome to Why It Matters, Matthew. Thanks very much, Michael. Lovely to be with you. And uh, just to help our listeners, just to settle us into into the conversation, where are you at the moment? What part of the world are you in and what's your what's your current location? So currently I am in Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire. I am uh-huh. in my bedroom. Um, so if you can imagine, uh, it's looking pretty intense because I have tested positive for COVID a couple of days Eek. ago. So there is um, quite a lot of sort of life debris around. And to contextualise this, we are about 10 days away from Christmas. So there's quite a lot of stuff to be doing. Um, so it does feel kind of an interesting time. So you're hunkered into a bedroom out the way of the family trying not to spread the germs? I am trying. Um, although actually it was one of my children, I think. Who was the spreader to me? Yeah, always blame the kids. Always exactly. blame the kids. Yeah, absolutely. And just tell us a little bit about background. Give us just an idea of how long you've been involved with Trussell Trust, how you ended up there, and perhaps just sort of lay out a little bit of the kind of history to the organisation. Sure. So um, for, for me personally, I've I've always been inspired by and interested in social change. Even right back when, when I was at school as a teenager, I remember being kind of involved in quite a few different clubs and social action projects and things that made a difference to other people. Uh, And that really inspired me. And then throughout my career, I've um, worked in the charity sector. Um, So firstly, very much in the faith-based side of things. Um, Spent a a number of years working as a youth worker, particularly working with young people um, from quite sort of troubled and uh, marginalised backgrounds um, and um, doing quite a lot of work around kind of detached youth work and outreach. And then subsequently to that, uh, worked for about eight or nine years for a global faith-based mission organisation uh, called the Bible Society, uh, where I was director of programme. Really enjoyed that um, and particularly thinking a little bit from a program perspective about the difference you can make, particularly when it comes to things that are quite intangible. So um, it sort of honed my expertise a little bit in the areas of impact measurement and strategy design uh, in that setting, uh, which led me about three and a half years ago to join uh, the Trussell Trust. I was really inspired by the work of um, food banks across the UK, having um, met a number of people involved in food banks. And so uh, when there was a job that came up for director of strategy and impact, I thought, wow, you know, that's uh, a fantastic job that I'd love to uh, work at. And in terms of uh, Trussell, uh, I guess the, the history there is somewhat longer. So Trussell is nearly 25 years old oh. as a charity, which a lot of people don't uh, don't know. Again, uh, not 
an immediately direct route to the charity that is more well known these days. So it was actually founded as a kind of anti-poverty charity, but focused um, specifically in Bulgaria and looking to work with um, children who were orphans in Bulgaria. Mm. And actually, it was when the founders, uh, Paddy and Carol Henderson, came back to the UK to try to raise support and awareness of the work they were doing over there, that they became increasingly aware, they had conversations with people actually about the levels of poverty in their own local area. And that inspired them um, to extend the remit of the charity from um, kind of overseas poverty relief um, to trying to do something to tackle UK poverty. Um, here. Mm. So that was right back in sort of uh, the late 1990s. Um, so yeah, a, a bit of a history. And the, and food banks, when did it start getting involved in food banks specifically? And The work of um, Paddy and Carol remained quite focused in Salisbury, which is where they were from, and where Trussell Trust was founded as a charity and kind of moved quite swiftly after that kind of incident into food distribution of kind of tins and provisions of food for people who were struggling in, effectively in between benefits payments mm. but you know Paddy and Carol attended a church and started talking about what they were doing in their church but also through the network that that church had with other churches around the UK and over the kind of particularly the early 2000s uh, a number of other churches then began also um, following the kind of model that that they had set up in Salisbury and really it was in the 2000s that you began to see a network of Trussell Trust food banks um, develop around the UK. Uh, It wasn't huge growth uh, initially maybe sort of 50-60 different uh, kind of food banks and it wasn't really until 2010 onwards that you then started to see a kind of significant um, growth in terms of the numbers of food banks um, both trust or trust food banks and actually independent food banks. And what's the what's the kind of scale now? What's the, how big is is Trussell? I, I mean, I think we're we're probably the the largest um, food bank charity in the UK. Part of that is because we are federated, so people are federated to the Trussell Trust, and and there are lots of independent food banks. It's difficult to tell a little bit after the pandemic because so much kind of emergency food provision cropped up, and some of it would call itself food banks, and some wouldn't. But prior to the pandemic, we were we represented about two thirds uh, of food bank provision in the UK, and we operate out of thirteen hundred centres, um, right the way through from kind of Shetland Islands down to Cornwall, Isle of Wight, you know, to Northern Ireland as well. And just to clarify that 1,300 centres, you're saying there that that's, that's 1,300 food banks, active food banks? Yeah, I mean, um, that would be experienced by somebody who was seeking to access emergency food as, a, as their local food bank. Um, technically speaking, that's operated by about 425 different charities, food bank charities, and some of those will be solely set up for the provision of a food bank and others will be kind of part of a bigger charity, maybe a kind of set of kind of local community charities who've come together under an umbrella body or something. But those 425 central charities run those 1,300 different kind of food bank centres. And how many people would be going through their doors? It would really depend, Michael. I mean, um, you know, obviously there are some food banks that are more in areas where there would be kind of higher use than than others. I I mean, looking at it from a UK-wide perspective, last year was our busiest year as a network of food banks, quite unsurprisingly with the pandemic, etc. So over the course of that year, we distributed through the Trussell Trust food banks um, over 2.5 million emergency three-day food parcels. Um, that wouldn't represent necessarily sort of 2.5 million people because we are often 
accessed by people more than once. Right. And so, but it, I wouldn't want to kind of give the impression that then there are people accessing, you know, many, many times, the average yeah. number of times that people access a, a trust or trust food bank over the course of a 12 month period is around 2.5 times. Um, so you, you could, you could expect that to be about a million people. Which is a huge amount of people. Um, it is, uh, and, and I think it's also borne out by some of the statistics you see elsewhere uh, in terms of levels of destitution in the UK, and it's also borne out by we we do kind of polling on an annual basis and ask a, a, a variety of different kind of kinds of questions. But one of the questions we're always quite keen to include in that is, you know, have you visited a food bank in the last three months? Have you visited a food bank? You, know, you or your household visited a food bank in the last year or, or greater than twelve months ago? And the kinds of figures that we see, I think, are are kind of also backed up by those kind of self-declared responses to. And so how do we end up in this situation that we have a, a million people in the UK who are accessing food banks through the Trussell Trust? Yeah, I mean, uh, effectively, I mean, I think it's uh, it's quite a complex um, story. And I think it'd be, uh, you know, sometimes this kind of stuff is quite pigeonholed into kind of, you know, X caused Y. And I don't think you can necessarily say that. I, I think one one thing to note is that we've seen exponential growth over the, the course of the last five years. Um, so even prior to the pandemic, we had seen in the five years previous to that, 73% growth in the number of food suppliers that were distributed from our food banks. Now, when you look back, um, you know, from the, the peak of the pandemic, although we expect that to kind of not rise so 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 swiftly in this in this year that we're in now you're looking at 128% growth over the last 5 years so you know more than doubling of the number of food parcels distributed so there is something going on some of it goes back to that story that I was saying in you know in the early 2000s it was a kind of a relatively small close knit group of kind of individuals that run food banks across the UK in the early 2010s you saw a lot of people responding to increased levels of, of need in their local communities. Some of that was the fallout from the global economic crisis in, was it 2008? And some of it was, I think, in response to some of the, then the kind of measures that were put in place to kind of tighten the purse strings um, as a result of that. And so you did see by 2012, 13, that number of about sort of 60 or 70 different kind of food bank charities around the UK go up to like the 425, 450 mark that we've we see now within the Trussell Trust network. Um, so you can see the level of growth there. But interestingly, the growth that we're now talking about is based on a static number of food banks providing the static number of kind of opportunities for people to access food. So it's not like people are responding to increased offer. It's actually the, the kind of the demand that is increasing rather than the offer that's increasing now. And so, and you can tie that to various things. So we, we are, of course, very concerned to know what is driving food bank use? So we worked with Harriet Watt University, a kind of very well regarded research team um, back in 2019 and again in 2020 to do some quite in-depth work with people who were accessing emergency food as well as people who were referring people to food banks. So that might be local social services or it might be a um, teacher or a doctor or a housing association and began to look, you know, use that opportunity to look, you know, in quite some depth as to what was causing the the kind of the referrals that we were seeing. And to give you a kind of high level snapshot of that, I mean, it, it's quite, you know, we, sometimes you talk about percentages and figures, that, you know, you, you can gloss over them. But th this study found that 95%, Michael, of people who were referred to Trust or Trust food banks in early 2020 were technically considered destitute. And destitution is a hard word, and it's not a word that we use very often. 
um, in terms of our public communications, partly because of the stigmatizing aspect of, of that word for people. But what that means is that people are going at, you know, without, for a period of time, the essentials that you or I might expect to have to be able to get by, you know, without heating or lighting, without warmth, uh, without kind of appropriate clothing and appropriate footwear and without food. This is in the fifth richest economy in the world. And we're seeing 95% of that roughly million people that I'm talking about experiencing that kind of level of poverty. You know, sometimes there's this thing that sort of said, oh, it could happen to any of us. It is actually tied to, to quite specific things that people are corollaries as to why people end up in food banks. So, for example, um, 62%, so almost two thirds of people in that study who are um, accessing food bank services um, have some form of disability. Right. So uh, that might be um, a physical disability or it might be um, a mental health um, kind of issue. That is three times the rate of the general population. So th- these are people who are experiencing difficulty in their lives, not just a kind of simply a financial crisis, but actually a compound cr- crisis of finance. But it, it's, you know, if you know anything about living with a disability or if you if you have somebody with a disability in your household, you know that actually so very often it's more costly to live as somebody who experiences disability. Um, there is something going on there that is, you know, I think one can say is, is definitely tied back to income levels for people with disability. And that increasing cost is because of adaptations for the home and all sorts of different things you know well certainly you're not able to get somewhere on foot sometimes and so being able to pay for transport and being able to pay for you know specific types of transport you know all of that kind of stuff and there are allowances to cover these kinds of uh, these kinds of things and support to cover these kinds of things but I think you do start to look at things in the realm of is that sufficient and are and do people have all of the available help and support to be able to access that support as readily as possible and disability is not the only story i mean single parents would be another kind of category that we might be talking about here 18 percent of people who were in that study coming to trust trust food banks were single parents uh, with children and that's again more than double the rate of, in the general population so there is some some categories of of people within the general population that are more likely to be exposed to this level of severe poverty that I think we we need to consider as unacceptable. Gosh, that's really shocking, isn't it? When you think think about the scale of the situation, I think one of the things that stood out to me, I think it was earlier in the year, you published your your five year strategy, and I think in the context that I saw it, there was a headline that essentially said that the Trussell Trussell exists to close food banks or something along something along that lines, and it did exactly what it needed to do, and that it kind of created the head turn. And I kind of leaned in and said, "What? What does what on earth does that mean?" So, just interested to kind of talk then a little bit. The kind of heart of the episode is, you know, why does closing food banks matter? But in the context of your five year strategy, what 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 is the thinking there? I think the vision I've seen in the strategy is that you want to end the need for food banks. Tell me more about that. I mean, some people would say the purpose of any good charity should be to, to kind of shut itself down. I, I'm not entirely sure that that's always true. I think there's some additionality that some charities provide that is a helpful additional benefit to society that, that actually you, you could see a future, you know, as that need, being needed in perpetuity. But I think from, a, a, from our perspective in terms of food banks, we simply don't think it's right that people should need to rely on emergency food that's donated by other members of the general public 
in order to simply feed themselves and their family. We as a society should be providing for everybody to have the essentials that they need in life. Mm-hmm. And so food banks were initially set up as a kind of humanitarian response to levels of crisis that people were experiencing in local communities that was seldom slash rare. And what's happened over the last 15 years has been that that seldom slash rare has turned into something that is, for some sections of society, frequent and also almost expected. And that's that, that level of kind of growth, both in terms of the volume of people accessing food bank support, but also the, the kind of um, parallel sort of institutionalization or kind of expectation that food banks will just form part of society's safety net is something that we feel is not right, it's not just, and it needs challenging. And actually, the, the British public agree. So 83% think that food banks don't solve the root causes of poverty, and 72% agree that food banks shouldn't be needed in the long term. So I, I think it's we're on the side of the public, we're on the side of ourselves. And, and I think it's, it's quite clear that we need to work towards some kind of future where food banks are no longer needed. I mean, it's, it, it's not untrue to say that throughout the whole of human history, people have stepped in and alongside somebody when people have fallen into crisis. You know, we, we've always seen people come alongside people, you know, at every, every stage of human history, and that's that's part of the human spirit. But I think what we are objecting to is the kind of mass industrialization of a charitable kind of level of support for a group of people who are, um, some would argue, kind of like unjustly kind of pushed into the situation mm. that they are in. Uh, and in effect, responding to that with a kind of charitable offer isn't right. We think that's the responsibility more broadly of of state and society to kind of be be stepping in. And in fact, it's responsibility of you and me, Michael. So it's 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 that 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 kind of drives the conviction. You know that kind of sort of sense of deep, deep injustice. And in fact, you know, what led us to that um, in terms of reflection, I guess, is is possibly maybe three things i I think one is our values so we spent quite a long time so since i i came to work at trussell we we were going through a kind of strategy development process and spent a long time in terms of trying to just identify what our values were as a kind of uh, central organization that supports those kind of different charities who are delivering food banks around the uk um, and also how that is common Um, to those charities too and as you can imagine coming into that kind of you know you have probably a grand total of about 250 different kind of nice adjectives that people might say about themselves so just kind of trying to really hone that down to a kind of a to a small and consistent yet powerful group of kind of values that do unite us and, and landing on compassion and justice community and dignity those four values help triangulate our decision points and yes we're compassionate and yes we will always continue to provide when somebody is in a moment of crisis um, that immediate support that, that somebody requires but justice requires us to work towards a future where that person won't need to come through our doors anymore because we believe in the dignity 
of each individual and that we if we uphold dignity we know that a food bank is not a dignifying experience for people accessing emergency food is not dignifying we we hear children talk about the shame and the stigma of that in schools and not being able to talk about it with their class you know that that's that should prevent us from wanting a future with food banks and and if we are truly committed to community a true sense of community is that that we we look for the common good in our communities and that surely isn't that the the poorest suffer because of the desires of everybody else to kind of not have to work towards that common good so so that values base is really really important for us um, but then i mean i think there were a couple of other things that also led us to that one, one is um, a little bit more i guess around the experience of our food banks uh, and the staff and the volunteers in those food banks um, you know, as, as I described before, many started their volunteering or their, their work at, at, at Trust or Trust Food Banks in the early 2010s as a kind of an emergency response to some of the situation they saw around them. And they thought that might be for like two, three years, maybe as a kind of temporary kind of endeavour. And you're now talking sort of eight, nine, ten years on for many of those people. And they're kind of saying, you know, these numbers just keep going up and up. We're getting tighter and tighter, and we didn't expect to still be doing this. We need to do something different uh, than what we're doing because it's just, it, it's not stopping yeah. <laughs> this thing yeah. just by us providing. It, it doesn't, it doesn't stop. Uh, and, uh, and so that experiential kind of outcry is, is I think really important to listen to. And then I guess the third thing that, that motivated us to move down that route was uh, it was really helpful uh, and this is, uh, I think, very important for any organisation, but is to, to listen to your friendly critics as well, and sometimes less friendly cri- critics. And there was, you know, from within academia, from within certain parts of, um, I guess, the kind of social sector, there were concerns being raised about what was the actions of, uh, of Trust Trust and other food bank charities simply institutionalising emergency food aid as a, as a kind of form of support. And I'm very grateful to those kinds of voices who were kind of calling out that actually unintentionally, I think, um, we had taken some decisions in the past that, that weren't oriented towards long-term change. Uh, and we need to do some more to think about that. So the, the so the accusation was that you were treating the symptom rather than the kind of totally yeah yeah, yeah. And, and I think it would I mean I don't think that that's true of Trussell Trust and I don't think it's true of of the food banks that were were kind of operating in the field universally I don't think you know I I've met an awful lot of people that really weren't in it just to try and treat the symptom but I think there there was a bit of a sense of that that we needed to have a plan to not be doing that because actually by not having a plan then then we were inadvertently walking into that kind of institutionalization so yeah one of those critics really interestingly was a guy called um, Andy Fisher American guy who wrote a book called Big Hunger which about food banking in America uh, and in Canada um, and has been a kind of an incredibly helpful contentious voice in terms of challenging I think not just UK food banking but you, you know around the rest of the world to to not necessarily like allow what he perceives has happened in American society with a kind of an unhelpful kind of formal institutionalization of food banks over there tied up with kind of big business and uh, and policy making decisions um, that have happened there that have led to a really 
it being quite a formalized structure within the kind of what is part of the safety net over there in America. Yeah, it's interesting because I, mean, I don't have a great understanding of the American system, but there's it's heavily reliant on philanthropy, isn't it? And kind of individual philanthropy or corporate philanthropy rather than any sort of state intervention. It is, but there are also um, nutritional programs and various other things in the States, which are, so there, there are parts of the welfare system over there that I mean, I think sometimes there's a bit of pastiche that in America there is no no state welfare. That's not quite true, but effectively, it's. I think Andy's critique would be that it's quite paternalistic, right. insofar as effectively it's food vouchers or food stamps is is what you receive to to redeem in very particular ways in particular places, and that actually I think again the critique would be that that hasn't actually necessarily been tied to the best outcomes for the person who's experiencing poverty not least because some of the options available to people are quite unhealthy yeah, okay. kind of options yeah. uh, and so so it creates a kind of a kind of set vested interest is, is his critique yeah, not, I don't know enough yeah. about it to, to, to kind of be able to say so in a UK context then what would it take to end the need for food banks so I mean at its highest level I we I mean we as you say Michael we, we've kind of published our five-year strategy and to be clear, because it's always the first question people ask, are you trying to end the need for food banks in five years? No, we're not. This is about trying to work towards a future where that 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 vision is closer than where yeah. it is right now. Um, I, in, in terms of the strategy development, we, we've been quite influenced by a model called the ISM model, um, which is effectively, I mean, interestingly, I think something which is about how do you influence kind of perception change uh, and behavior change within a society and for us you know quite a lot of this is about perception change and behavior change and the ism model talks about individual social and material changes being necessary for any kind of big scale social change to occur and so thinking that down into kind of what's that look like from from a food bank perspective that that means for us a little bit about how do we help change things on a person by person level that kind of individual interaction level how do we change narrative about food banks and people's kind of expectations and stigmas around food banks in the social space and then from a policy perspective how do we influence for favorable policies in that material zone those materials are kind of the things that kind of always provide the framework within which the social and the individual stuff happens so ism is the name of the model that kind of in a way i think sort of underpins some of our assumptions about change uh, and we've articulated that in terms of change in communities or changing communities, changing um, minds and changing policy. Those are three kind of key areas. Very good. In terms of then practicalities, that's you shifting away then from being a service provider into more advocacy and more educational role. What's the, How does that shift the organisation? So um, I think it's really important to say just sort of straight off that food banks are still reliant on support, you know, food donations uh, and the kind of generosity of the general public, both in terms of volunteering and donating to continue um, supporting people in crisis. As I've said before, the numbers of people being referred to our food banks are, are you know, aren't going down at the moment. So we, we are not ceasing support for people in crisis. Um, but whilst we are doing that, these three areas focus on what we can do to then kind of address the long-term issues that push mm. people into needing food banks. So um, thinking in, through those three areas, in terms of changing communities, a really kind of practical example is um, around um, what's called 
it's a bit of a technical jargon term, but it's kind of financial inclusion work or sometimes called income maximization work. Uh, and this is basically the provision of um, advice services to help people um, access all of the support uh, that they are entitled to. And it's uh, quite shocking, I think, that um, within the UK at the moment, every year there is at least 15 billion pounds of unclaimed benefits that doesn't include by the way <laughs> universal credit uh, which is you know one of the most significant benefits so the, the calculations on that aren't through yet but 15 billion in unclaimed benefits and when you think that 86% of people who are referred to food banks their sole form of income is benefits you can see the importance of us helping people navigate the benefit system to be able to kind of get the benefits that they are entitled to especially when you think about things like disability so having that kind of level of support available alongside food bank um, and ideally actually before people are referred to a food bank is really important to us so changing communities for us looks a little bit like making sure that when somebody comes to a food bank it's not just that they are as they always are offered a nice kind of cup of tea and a welcome and a uh, and a kind of listening ear and a parcel of food also the opportunity to make a really practical difference to the money that's in their pocket so working with partners like citizens advice and other kind of partners to make sure that there are um, funded roles that sit in food banks alongside uh, the work that's already going on to make sure that somebody if they are referred to a food bank has less likelihood of needing to be referred again in the future because their their kind of household income is more resilient than it was prior to them coming um on the kind of changing minds front I, I, you know there's lots to do here uh, in terms of thinking about kind of our societal kind of expectations um, but one area that we're really kind of focusing on is amplifying and preferencing voices of people who have got direct experience of the kind of levels of severe poverty that we see because we don't often hear from those people either in mm. um, the media or you know locally in terms of kind of people who are able to kind of influence in our kind of local decision making so we're starting got underway a kind of real sort of stream of work to equip ourselves as trust or trust but also food banks all around the uk to involve much more deliberately people who have used um, food bank services in terms of uh, training and supporting those people to become advocates also taking approaches like community organizing which i'm sure you might have heard of before but to kind of to, to help facilitate people who are most directly impacted by issues to articulate or kind of say what the kind of changes that they most want to see in society and then offer to kind of support those people to kind of lead the charge for that kind of change. So, and I think from perception shifting kind of element, we too often have in our heads a kind of particular paternalistic image of the kinds of people that might be needing to access emergency food. And sometimes media portrayals haven't been helpful in terms of adding kind of levels of stigma to that too. And hearing directly from those voices will be one of the things that helps us to kind of course correct as a society in terms of our understanding around that. So we're doing a really exciting project for with BBC Children in Need around kind of uh, working with a group of young people directly impacted by food insecurity to kind of enable them to share their stories through media and stuff. So, you know, lot, lots around that. And then, of course, in the changing policy space, there's always policy change that we can be recommending. One of the great things that we have as an organisation is access to significant levels of data across the uk around that kind of experience of poverty it's a 
terrible thing that it has to happen in the first place, but let's at least capture that data and use it to inform and shape policies around things like benefits, sufficiency, uh, and about things like the rollout of universal credit to make sure that it's as accessible as possible to people, but also that people aren't penalised um, because of their kind of circumstances in terms of accessing that support. So there's, there's lots of different practical things we're doing in those areas as well. Shaping the perceptions is really interesting. Obviously, I come from a sort of brand background and um, often you think of branding in terms of storytelling and telling the story of the product or the service. But, you know, there's nothing as compelling as being able to hear firsthand the kind of direct experience of someone who's been through that system, knows exactly what it's like and the kind of stigma that's all attached to it. It, it calls to mind the film that Ken Loach did in 2016, I, Daniel Blake, which was an incredibly powerful story and probably, you know, for someone like me, you know, you, you get so used to working in your own social context and your your own social circles that you just kind of you lose touch with what a lot of people experience on a, on a day to day level. So those, yeah, I can see that those stories would be really powerful and compelling to help us see the kind of reality of what people are experiencing. That's right. Yeah, and I, I think it, it chimes also with our approach around dignity uh, and about saying that you know that whilst accessing emergency food at a food bank is not um, inherently a dignifying experience, what can we do to kind of capitalise on that in order that somebody can um, own that experience with dignity and be able to kind of move from that position of apparent powerlessness yeah. into a position of um, agency and support for themselves and for other people in their communities um so uh, i i think it's quite a virtuous thing to be doing and not for us but but for people yeah it, it directly yeah, impacted and and key policies that you think need to be addressed to help think get to the root cause and bring about a systematic change yeah, I mean, there's lots of different stuff. I mean, you'll have heard me talk quite a lot about um, social security. One of the kind of really interesting things, Michael, at the moment is clearly, and you'll have kind of heard this earlier in the autumn as there was the conversation about retaining the £20 uplift to universal credit or not. Yeah. Um, clearly, there is an aspiration for a universal credit to work for people who are seeking to get into an employment mm. um, situation. And I think that's admirable and uh, and you know, is a good endeavour to be to be working towards. However, what it fails to address is that there are a group of people in our society who, for reasons beyond their own control, will not ever be able to work to the either to the kind of um, level in terms of numbers of hours, uh, or indeed at all. Mm. Um, to be able to kind of drive their income and have their income shaped and changed by work. And I think we need to have a conversation about that as a society and say, do we just leave those people behind and expect them to survive, barely survive, if at all, on insufficient levels of income? Or do we say, actually, we need to be more intelligent about the way that we think about tailoring something like universal credit, which works for a kind of significant proportion of people who are trying to get into the job market, but actually leave some others behind. So universal credit is a big area for us, uh, both about the kind of the level of universal credit that's given to people and the way in which that's rolled out and kind of tailored more appropriately. And um, there's also uh, work uh, that we've been quite involved with over the past few years about local welfare assistance um, schemes. These are, some people might know them as kind of formal former kind of crisis grants um, or other kind of titles that they were given in different local authorities but effectively hardship grants and stuff this is funding that was allocated to local authorities 
um, to enable them to be able to kind of respond when an individual or a household experiences crisis. Um, they're still retained actually in Scotland through the Scottish Welfare Fund and uh, the different four nations in the UK all have different approaches to this. But it varies considerably from local authority to local authority, both in terms of the level of funding that's offered, the kind of availability of that and also the access to that funding. Yeah. Uh, and again, we'd like to see that more readily available to people because actually it, you know, we know local authority budgets are tight. We know it's hard uh, economically at the moment, but actually I think it's more cost effective to step in and support somebody when they're experiencing crisis with adequate financial support than it is to kind of um, push them almost into a cycle of kind of then uh, needing to go through the emotional turmoil of, of accessing emergency food, et cetera. So, so there's a, there's a kind of a set of knock-ons associated. Yeah. So kind of breaking this cycle of Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, I'm personally quite interested in the kind of leveling up um, agenda yeah. and, you know, some of the other kind of stuff around local communities as well. And about, you know, one of the things that, that is quite ubiquitous that our food banks would tell us an awful lot. And also people who are experiencing this kind of level of severe poverty would say would be about depletion in the services that are available to people locally um, over the past 10, 12 years. I mean, just in the news, I mean, this is just kind of current right now, but I'm thinking about some of these very challenging cases around child abuse and uh, violence against children and social services effectively responding, saying, you know, this has been very difficult for us because we haven't been funded <laughs> adequately. Um, and this is what happens when you erode funding. And there are, you know, we need to have a grown up conversation about what level I think we, we want to fund the kind of services that then prevent the kinds of crises that we start to see on the kind of front pages of our newspapers, whether that's, you know, food insecurity, whether it's, you know, um, other kinds of forms of neglect or, or kind of, you know, disadvantage towards elderly uh, elderly people you know th there's lots of different areas of our society where there are kind of quite extreme kind of manifestations and i think they they haven't been helped by funding challenges um, over the past 10 years and if our listeners wanted to help and get involved what's the what's the best way that they could they could support the effort yeah i mean there's obviously the very classic stuff <laughs> No, um, please do visit our website at <laughs> trustatrust.org or um, the Independent Food Aid Network uh, is also a great website to find out about other food banks that aren't part of Trust or Trust. Uh, that's IFAN, um, Independent Food Aid Network. Um, so both of those, would, will, there'll be plenty of stuff on there. So over time, our kind of ways to get involved change, you know, whether that's through a kind of particular campaign or whether it's through um, donation or whether it's for, you know signing up to kind of do micro volunteering or any of those kind of things so there's lots of opportunities there mm. uh, and of course on our website and on the ifam website there's a list of local food banks as well so um, getting in touch with a, your local food bank and sort of asking them what they would like support with and also being quite creative about that and you know because food banks tend to work monday to friday daytime so often kind of like are able to kind of have um, often kind of retirees or kind of other people who have who are able to kind of volunteer during the day to kind of do some of the more practical things that shouldn't stop people from saying well okay I, I, maybe I work nine to five or I work kind of flexibly um, but I'd, I'd be able to offer some of my kind of work experience in some kind of way whether you know someone like you Michael you know helping come alongside and thinking a little bit about communications and brands for a food bank and how they impact into their local community could be a really powerful way of supporting your local food bank so there's there's that stuff but I, I think what I'd really like to sort of in a sense, um, I challenge myself on um, quite frequently is thinking back to the, that ISM model, the individual social and material, like what 
what changes am I pushing for in my own life in that kind of material space? So how am I writing to my MP? How am I engaging in the kind of policy world to push for positive change? How am I having the kind of social conversations? How am I flagging my concerns around inequality? And also, actually, how am I doing that in my individual life? What what costs am I willing to bear in terms of my own preferences? And that can come down to something as simple as, you know, like what, you know, can I put a tin in a in a collection point in a supermarket? But it could also be, you know, am I willing actually to kind of forego a little bit more of my income to support people who have been less advantage and that might not be for a food bank charity that might be about funding something like you know a, a homelessness charity or a housing charity or a disability charity or an isolation charity you know any of those kind of things where or getting involved with any of those things how do i give up my own time and my money to to kind of help address an inequality in society that i feel passionately about so i, I think there is a kind of personal cost to that and we need to kind of consider how we how, how we do that appropriately each one of us but i think i think yes of course you can do the whole kind of like sign up to our campaigns or whatever and like kids do but i think there is also a kind of personal thing there that's really helpful challenge thank you matthew and so we have this kind of final question about uh, stuff that you've been looking at that you think is worth recommending worth a look to our readers so is there anything that you've been watching reading listening to recently that you think would be worth a look just on the topic i would commend i i I do think it's quite interesting for people if you are interested in kind of food banking and america and you know challenge around some of that stuff big hunger by andy fisher is is a good book to read Uh, so that'd be my like professional kind of tip there i to be honest i i'm going to do a bit of a cheaty kind of answer here which is that i am i tend to get the things that I like to read, look, listen to, watch from, I'm sorry to say this, Michael, another podcast. Oh. <laughs> can I promote another podcast you on your podcast? Please do, please do. Um, uh, which you may well have come across, and I'm sure many of your listeners will have done as well, but which is um, After Hours okay. um, by the team at um, HBR, Harvard Business Review. Oh. And it's a, it's a, it is really, I, lo- I love it. It's basically a conversation between normally three uh, different professors from Harvard um, business school and it's after hours because it's quite like relaxed it's yeah. not kind of a dry management conversation it's actually three people sort of vibing on economic business cultural kind of issues uh and thinking a little bit about what those mean yeah like you know from a from a business perspective but also from a kind of social perspective um and as part of that show they also often do a section called tips uh, which is like the, the thing to watch the thing to listen to and i've picked up quite a few things oh, great. <laughs> I, like, I joined tiktok early because of that <laughs> you know <laughs> um and i um you know and i started watching succession early because yeah. of you know like they're so so they're, they're quite ahead of the game yeah. I, I like it it's That's that kind of east coast vibe well, you, like your, you, know. you like your cheat sheet i like that good yeah cheat exactly sheet. It, cheat sheet but it's also a brilliant show to listen to though they explain things really well it feels really engaging and it and it does that great thing of intersecting between sort of um, I guess data and uh, and business but also society and what what good looks like for us I, I really like it well thank you Matthew it's been an absolute uh, privilege to have you on uh, why it matters we really appreciate you sharing your your insights and uh, wish you all the best as you continue to roll out this five-year strategy thanks so much Michael it's been brilliant to be here you've been listening to why it matters White Matters has been put together by Spark Studio, the brand and design agency based in London. 
To find out more about us, visit our website at sparks-studio.com. Join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram at hashtag whyitmatterspod or get in touch with me at whyitmatters at sparks-studio.com. Thanks for listening.